Välkomna till Kulturhuset Stadsteatern i Stockholm. Jag heter Ingemar Fast, jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus. Alldeles strax, vem möter ni då? Jo, då möter ni Claudia Dorastanti. Och ni möter henne i ett samtal med Ika Johannesson och de samtalar på engelska. I don't speak Italian, so I don't know right now what he said about us. What did he say? The one and only. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. Hey, you're welcome now. And uh, I will switch to English straight away. And welcome, Claudia. Hi. This is your first time in Sweden, but not your first day in Sweden, because yesterday you were in Malmö. Yes. Can you tell us about that visit? It was interesting to visit two cities in quite short span of time. I was a little... Uh, dizzy, but I but I loved it. I have to come back. I think this was just uh, an appetizer, and I hope I get the chance to to be here again. Yes. Uh, you live in Rome. Yes. At the moment, for the time being, who knows? Yes. <laughs> you mentioned when we spoke uh, backstage that yes, it's for the time being, and your um, publisher said, "Would you bought a flat?" But you seem a bit wary of saying that you live. Are you always? Do, don't you want to be? Are you afraid of being tied down to uh, a place? I think solutions for definitions of the self often come from the outside. So I never know how to pin myself. And then someone said, she's not Italian-American, American-Italian. She, someone said, she's Lucanian-American and Lucania Basilicata is the region I was born in. Mm-hmm. So he was tying them. Uh, south of Italy and the States. And I said, oh, that fits me. And then another definition I could use to answer to your question is in a book by Elizabeth Hardwick. Um, She was a critic, um, biographer of Melville. And she said, if I have to define myself, I would use a word in Melville and Moby Dick that says landlessness. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's my answer. (laughs) How I perceive myself in space and time with landlessness. Nice. We have so much to talk about, because this book, as you all know who've read it, is a wild ride, to say the least. Uh, And I have so many questions for you about your story, about your parents, about your childhood, um, about the importance of language. And um, I'm also going to uh, open for questions at the end, so if I miss anything, or if there's anything you'd like to ask Claudia, please do and just keep it in mind for when I open at the end. The more questions, the merrier. That's what, that's what we like, right? <laughs> so, um, I would like to begin... Unless, uh, sorry, somebody says there's not enough sex in the book. That happens sometimes. So in the audience, if somebody comes out with that, I usually look at me and we try to do something to distract ourselves. If that happens... If that happens? <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, before I'm going to ask Claudia to read a passage soon, but to begin with, I would like to to ask, uh, ask first because when I I read this in one sitting, and it was it's a very intense read, and I sometimes had to go back because I couldn't be too tired when reading because there's so much happening, um, and this is what I perceive to be your life. How can you begin by describing the process of writing this book? 
Yes, I resisted very radically <laughs> to write this book since I was six years old because I moved from with my mother from Brooklyn to this small village in southern Italy. And of course, when you land there like an alien or a stranger, people want to see if you're a threat, who you are, who do you belong to. Uh, and so they would ask. And of course, you start from mother and father. And I would say, oh, my parents are divorced, both deaf, kind of art but they don't really work. Uh, my mother used to wear clothes that she looked like Jackson Pollock, basically. And so, and people were all intrigued by them. They were suddenly click and be, you know, addicted to their stories and nobody would care about me anymore. So I said, this is not maybe what fiction is. You know, it's the art of lying and transfigurating your circumstances. So I understood almost viscerally that what I was interested in it was um, not so much disguise, but the power of the voice and the tone rather than the power of the facts. When I was speaking about my parents, the facts won over everything else. Because the facts were so, pretty extraordinary by themselves? Yes, yes. And also, when you live in a sort of um, marginal, exceptional circumstance that people tell you, that's a story they tell you, or that's an exceptional circumstance, but from within, it's not necessarily interesting. <laughs> it could also be boring. So I didn't know what to do with this biographic material until this was the fourth book. Mm -hmm. And it was from um, outside triggers, I would say, clues that made me feel and perceive my personal history as, uh, or my parents' history uh, of the self as interesting. Let's say Emily Dickinson quote that opens the book after a great pain, a formal feeling comes. So that's just like a, good first line in a song, I think, you know, and formal uh, was interesting, but it's, it's not just about a coldness, a distance, or how you position yourself, but it's also about form. How do you shape things, and what form do you give to a life? So to me, that verse contained both a sense of positioning, so where do you put yourself compared to your family or life events, but also a meditation on, on form of a life, if you wanted to write a novel from life. Mm. Have you always known, I mean, you've been writing for a long time, and as you said, this is your fourth book. Mm -hmm. um, have you known that you were going to write about your life? Uh, not necessarily, as I said, because I was I was worried the only way this book could come out, if I wrote about my parents, it would be a real memoir, in a way. Mm -hmm. So I always wrote about my parents in disguise in my early work, uh, but I treat I, the tone there is more angry, visceral, and cathartic. It's funny, these were sold as short stories and novels, but I was writing more as a daughter. Mm. This book, which is kind of openly uh, a mix between personal essays, autobiography, novels from life, in a way it feels I'm, writing, I'm a writer here in this book towards my family. So I like the fact that um, personal myths or stories that happen to you, or facts, or family can be uh, way more, feel more real in your fiction rather than in what is openly a work, uh, autobiographical, um, confessional work. Mm. What did it, how was the process of going back to childhood memories, childhood experiences, both concerning your parents and also your adolescence and coming into be becoming an adult and a woman and moving, revisiting your life? How was that? 
Yes, sometimes I'm surprised when I think how they teach um, history in elementary school mm. in the sense that there, this happened first, then this happened later. You know, you had the mm, people living in caves, then you had the Romans, you had empires and all that. And that does no longer work for me <laughs> in the sense of how I perceive time. And sometimes I feel, why did I buy this for so long? So this didn't work as a structure, timeline, and going back and revisiting the story of my family. So mm. this is why what I did immediately was give up. With that kind of timeline comes also a sense of a genealogical tree. So the metaphor underlying a family is often, this is a tree, your mother is here, she branched from another woman, you're branching from her, and this is where you are compared to these people. And I think that didn't apply, and I felt more that family and even the distance, the light distance between uh, people you have family ties with or affection, people you encounter, had to do more with constellation and the mm -hmm. fact that a mother is not forever in a way. Uh, she comes up and she is very bright at sometimes, and sometimes she's just a black hole. And this is relevant for all the characters in the book. So if you follow that kind of sense of sequencing of time, uh, you had to start with childhood, and then you had to show a coming of age, and then you had to give up on some certain characters. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to abandon them for a while, and then I want to reconnect with them. And also, I felt it wouldn't work if I was writing this book as a voiceover. You know, mm. when I was a little girl, I didn't like that kind of echo or sound. I really wanted to make it clear that in most of the moments of the book, there is a consciousness of a little girl, of a teenager, an adult woman, mm. dislocated and different. They interfere pretty much with each other. Mm. That's, a, that's one of the nice the things that I like about the book that it's. I like the sequencing, that it's like 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 you were saying, short stories. It's uh, different observations. It's uh, is is it around forty different sections of text? I think I counted two. Um, how long did it take you to write them all? Have you been writing for many years? Is it old things combined with new things, or did you just write it? Sometimes I feel uh, like a thief as well, in the sense that I used pieces of my other fiction. There is an mm. episode of kidnapping. Mm. There is a passage on the addiction of OxyContin that I was experiencing to someone very close to me. And so there were dialogues, or there are things that were happening that I used in my former novels. And I thought it would be fun to take that material, which I wrote a long time ago, and see if it would acquire a different form or a different feeling mm. within this book. And this is true also for the chapter on work and money and class. That was my earliest personal essay. I wrote it like 13 years ago. And then there's a part on when my family voted, my extended family voted for Trump. And that's the first time I used my, that's interesting, the first time I used openly the I, the first person in writing was describing what was seeing your family vote for Trump. So it was a political curving event. And the only way I found a way to crack it was through uh, personal uh, events. Uh, and so I was kind of putting together. There were new parts, but there were also sections that felt very long that we're waiting, I think, for this book. So mm. in a way, I was also, I think I never openly recognized that, but I was preparing it for a, a long span of time. As much as I was resisting it, <laughs> probably I was already writing it. Was there anything during the process and also revisiting um, things that have happened, but and also analyzing things that have happened, was there anything that surprised you? 
One moment that was, I think, uh, meaningful for me, but especially um, on how I think about writing, was there is a scene uh, that I wanted to set specifically about humiliation. So I was at this, um, I grew up in a village with 30 people my age. Uh, and so you, you fell in love with everybody, you were dumped by everybody, you dumped them, but it was, you know, this recycling system. <laughs> the only possibility to meet someone new was through uh, birthday parties um, or, you know, the end of high school, they would have parties like that. So I had set in my mind, maybe I was thinking about some, you know, Zelda Fitzgerald moment that I would get ready for the party. Uh, I would go there and I see this kid, I don't know, I, I see him vaguely at school and we kind of flirting and talking. And then one friend comes from my childhood, he's very drunk, and he says, the worst thing, the most dramatic thing that happened to me is one when your father, talking about my father, came and he was trying to kidnap you, do, you know, threat you and stuff. It was a an act of violence he was describing. I didn't remember that episode at all. I'm not saying oh. I removed it, but it didn't matter anymore to the person I was in that specific moment. So when I described this scene, the humiliation was about him disclosing something uh, shameful from my past, or it was more the fact that I was losing a possibility of romance <laughs> with the stranger. And what mattered to me was still now, it's the loss of a possibility of romance with a stranger. But I think my friend was saying something that it's interesting in the way we understand literature and empathy. Uh, that was not his life. It was a fiction, a show, a performance by my father he was witnessing. But it, it stayed with him and it hurt him. Mm. Uh, and so in the afterword of the English edition, I wrote this thing that came up with me with that episode that fiction hurts, you know, <laughs> sometimes hurts way more. Uh, I can... Never forget, for example, I was very obsessed with the piano, the film, when mm -hmm. I was, uh, uh, I had this kind of <laughs> transfer, of course, because it's about a mother and a little girl that moved to a very hostile community. Um, and then she has a talent. My mother is a painter. She's a pianist, but she's very graceful and elegant, and she doesn't speak, whereas my mother spoke too much. So that was a little difference. But I, I and there was also this mother that was, you know, challenging her body and meeting a man. And so it was very seducing. And I was so hurt by the image of the piano falling in the water. So if you ask what the most important thing that happened to me, I would say the piano falling in the water, mm -hmm. just as much as my friend said, her father doing that thing. And I know there's a difference between what's real and not real, but I think it's interesting in the sense that we adopt, absorb, and transform works of art in something very personal. Mm. But now we need to, because we're going to come to the, um, I do have questions about the fact versus fiction, because it's recurring in the book. Um, but you say, in this, in this situation at this party, when your friend says um, this happened, because that's, as I remember it, that's how that scene is presented for the first time in the mm -hmm. book. And you're like, like what? held a knife to the throat, blah, blah. And now you said that was my father's performance. And what do you mean by that? Yes, this word is coming up a lot because people ask me, um, why did your father refuse sign language? Uh, and of course, there was a little bit of a cultural shame at that time. Many persons, I mean, he's mm. almost 70 people of his generation. You know, they didn't know how to handle it. And so they just uh, denied it. 
but I think my father, who was a rebel in many things, he was refusing the performance of deafness. Of course, every language is a performance, but I think he wanted to be visible for different reasons. And so he always had also an affinity for certain characters in American cinema, mm-hmm. uh, alienated man in a range of work that goes from Robert De Niro and Taxi Driver and Al Pacino and Scarface. And he didn't do anything criminal, but I think my father had a disorder in understanding that those characters were larger than life, were fictional characters. So I think he was assuming that uh, as a strategy, coping strategy, that he was performing certain roles that he chose from himself, but it was never the deaf man in a way. So for a long extent of time, <laughs> my father played out as he was one man from those films. So the way he did it, of course, it was an act of violence, but there was also sort of staging that me and my brother were very aware of. So if I go back to that scene, and I still call it a scene because the way it survives in my memory, it is as a scene and no longer uh, a real fact, um, I remember me and my brother laughing and not believing him. And I think that broke the illusion and the spell because if you have an actor performing on stage and you're laughing at the wrong time, laughing when he doesn't expect you to laugh, then the illusion falls apart. Mm. So that's what I remember. And maybe is why I say there is no act of violence in my life that I can recall without laughing. Now that you ask, the act of laughing was something that not only was protective, but it was also something that interfered with his performance. Okay, so you were never, you and your brother weren't scared for real when that happened? Is that what you're saying? Not really. Also because there was an audience, I mean, uh, in the town. I, I mm. think we were also aware. Uh, it's true that everybody was there as pretty much as a theater event. So I'm oh, okay. not trying to smooth it out. Okay. But I think the circumstances of it, it was not something that was happening in private. So that's mm. also interesting. And I think in the way it acted on our fear or our reactions to the event. Mm. Because you have a... a, a, I like the way that you present kind of dramatic things and stories in like a just matter of fact. Yeah, that happened. That happened. (laughs) Did you... um, I mean, of of course, now I understand that that's maybe the way also you experienced them. But um, did you want to um, set the reader up for some dramatic surprises but without doing it in a in a like expected way Hmm. if you understand what I mean yeah 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 um it's surely the way that I reconstruct those events uh but but I think it's pretty close to how I experienced it I think the main factor is in this disorder and understanding fiction and non-fiction and the boundaries between my my parents had, but it was also something that it was in my larger family. So if you grow up with a grandpa that has a deaf daughter and he keeps buying her, and this is also my uncle, her brothers did it, devices to listen to music, mm. you can get frustrated and you can say, are you in denial? This person is deaf. Mm. But then the daughter, almost as a magical ritual, she puts the headphones and she's like, I can listen to it. So if you're <laughs> growing up in this kind of atmosphere, it kind of trains you in, I think, in a very interesting way as a writer. So I was very lucky <laughs> to to experience that. Maybe it's more confusing in terms of coping with daily uh, life. And so I think that was very an instinct to me 
um, in setting scenes or constructing the, the book that I could handle the highest moments of implausibility in a way. Even the beginning is very implausible. How many yes. chances do you think that uh, two almost teenagers, deaf, could meet on a bridge uh, in Rome and the girl can save him from jumping? Mm. Uh, and so, but I believed my mother when she said that, not only because I know that they met, otherwise I wouldn't be here, but I believed that, that she uh, chose him in a way. She So this guy who was about to jump, a lot of people could walk, she stopped and uh, she chose him before knowing that they had something in simil similar. But when she found out they had something similar, that was a very difficult uh, connection to dismantle. So I say they had something that is more powerful than love. And my mother always said that to me. It's a sort of a likeness and intimacy. And they were not alike because they had the same disability. They were alike because they rejected or they played or they denied or reclaimed their disability in very similar ways. Mm. But there's also, after uh, the scene on the bridge, which is magical in a way, then it's your father's scene where he sees her at Termini, the station in Rome. Is that his view of how this started? Or is that... Because I read it as two just versions of how they met. Or is it how they met the first time and the second time? <laughs> no, that's how they met, according to each other. Yeah. And uh, I have to thank this uh, short trip to Sweden because it came up something in questions. And also, now that you're saying that, I didn't think about it. In each story, one is the main character mm -hmm. compared to the other. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, there's no space. It's the savior saving uh, someone. So I grew up with my mother that always told me the story since I was six. And growing up, I started getting bored by it at 14. I think I started getting bored also because I was jealous because you meet this guy, you spend the night together, you think he's crazy, you leave, and then you walk out of school the next day and you see him in front probably of a stolen car like this, looking at you, waiting for you. And my mother always said, ero spacciata, which means I was done. My life was over, you know? Uh, and I, of course, I thought that was going to be my love life. You know, someone stealing a car, coming in front of the high school and saying, oh, I was waiting for you. And I remember the kind of cynicism in a way that at one point I stopped uh, feeling the trick, the magic. And I would say it was not so difficult. There was only one school for deaf girls in Rome. You know, he went straight there, you know, and she kept saying he was a hunter. He was meant to find her. My mom is obsessed with meaning and this kind of very fatal way of exposing events. But um, my mom is a peculiar self-mythologist. Uh, I think everyone has a way of setting uh, the story of your life. Maybe you describe your life like a, you know, a poem or a punk song, or I would do it with a short story or a novel. My mom uses myth in the way she establishes herself in the world. And it's very hard to break a myth, I think. My father helped me doing that because uh, when I started to think about this book, uh, I was doing a little bit of a detective game and I never really was interested in knowing how he met her, I believed my mother. And he said, oh, I met her, I saved her from some street kids that were trying you know, to assault her. And I said, this is fantastic. Now I have a novel. I have two <laughs> contradicting yeah. versions of one fact. I can get, no, I can, I was lucky, like a poetic statement in the beginning. I came rid of questions, oh, what's yeah. true, what's false. 
Uh, I think they're both sincere, but the most fascinating thing to me is that the act of saving, I think it happened many, many times in their relationship. That was only one in the continuum of saving each other. That was one specific episode, but not the first time they saw each other. I think it's funny that they both start their lives uh, together with the same uh, act. Uh, and so it's more about selecting material and how what is really the first line in the book about yourself. And mm. I think they chose that event. It's very uh, obvious throughout your adolescence and your the early adulthood that you kind of see have this idea of this is the great passion. You meet the one, because you, you're also fed that from popular culture, of course. We're fed that you're supposed to be picked up on a motorcycle and go off into the <laughs> desert and everything, you know, should be like on fire all the time. At least that has been my idea too. And uh, so I, I feel your like disappointment that this is not happening. Uh, and I, um, I recognize that, and and then, like um, a ways in the book, your parents meet at I think a, a wedding, mm-hmm. and your mom dresses up. This is maybe as I'm guessing years after they haven't been together. Yeah, And years. he just looks at her and she's like, okay, hey, uh, goes to him, and you kind of have to stop them from like eloping to a hotel room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's also I was just like. <laughs> you know, it was it's a really strong scene for me because it's it's like it's that connection which is I think pretty rare, <laughs> but also uh, magical where where the b- book begins. What is I mean? Did they ha- was it always like that 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 connection stayed? Are your parents alive today? Yeah, yeah, they are alive. They they are in a non-speaking phase, let's say. But if there's another event like my brother's wedding or someone's occasion, they would meet. And I think the same thing would happen again. So uh, they hadn't seen each other uh, that day for almost 15, 17 years. And I bring my mother to, and it didn't end well the last time we saw each other. So I brought my mother into London in different shops to get a dress. And we went in like 20 stores and Mm. she kept trying, trying stuff. And I couldn't understand why she wanted the right dress. Mm. And she says, I don't want him to see me in a certain way. Mm. And I'm like, this man (laughs) messed your life. You messed his life. What is it so important? And then she came that day and she was like hiding, you know, almost like Eurydice going to a myth, you know, mm. almost don't want Orpheus mm. to see at all. So she's hiding behind me. And my father does this. Again, this looks like out of Greece, you know, that kind of films. He does this. <laughs> and I see my mother that goes, you know, uh, we were so worried and she goes. Uh, and they were thinking about hooking up. Yeah. <laughs> and we were all so frustrated. <laughs> And I think my brother, at one point, we were just like this because we don't have, I stole a line from Brodiar, the demonic influx. That's mm. how I call it. And it's something that overpowers anything. Mm. And maybe um, one gesture between my parents that I will never forget, my father, I speak about when he tried to crash himself with a car in the States. Um, and then the, after that, they divorced. He thought that he had the leftovers of the glasses of the window shield here. And so that the doctors didn't clean him well. My mother spent like 10 years after they were already divorced. He would come, put him on their lamp and take tweezers and to look for glasses that were not there. He knew the glasses were not there. Mm. 
and she knew, and I thought it was just a very beautiful moment. These two people probably never loved each other in the conventional sense, but in this kind of almost looked like a Renaissance painting, you know, with this very meticulous gesture. And that's one thing I could use to describe their mm. relationship. But of course, the intensity of it means it could happen only in certain long, long spans of time. You need an abyss in between, you need a distance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The beginning, uh, talking about uh, fact versus versus fiction, you write in the book very um, uh, very beautifully how your mom, you watched the Sanremo San festival mm -hmm. uh, on TV, and and she likes facts. She doesn't like fiction, and um, the book begins with two stories. The reader doesn't know what is which is true, and then it ends with um, the sentence. But is it a true story? Um, how have you dealt, we've been talking a bit about that, but how have you dealt with the relationship between fact and fiction when writing? Have you, I mean, how can I ask, or do you want to talk about how much of the book is true? Um, how much have you been uh, interested in creating? And how much have you wanted to keep, keep as facts? Yeah, I think with this book I was exploring um, the unbelievable, truth in the sense that this is 99% accurate, the way I remember it, of the way stories were told to me. But if I went to a publisher um, years ago and presented this as a fictional story of two deaf characters that have this attitude towards life, or even um, my mother has, has had multiple uh, identities like we all do, but she was not only deaf, she was even not even working class because she was a worker. She was experiencing, you know, economic marginality. She was a stranger, a migrant in different contexts in different countries. So she was in those positions where you have certain expectations. You know, be a good deaf person, be a good migrant, be a good poor, or the other problem we're representing deafness often in novels or in cinema is excessive uh, in the sense they are very overcharged sexually they have to do something that is really epic and my parents were both things they aged pretty much like all our parents do and they become more boring persons my mom there, you know, she taught me how to read Patti Smith poems, and now she just watches bad TV. So I feel more comforted, you know, <laughs> that she turned out into being like anyone else's mother. But there is this kind of evolution of character. So I felt it was almost provocative uh, to work with this idea uh, of is this believable? What expectations we have with marginal characters? And I sometimes you write out of a longing. Often memoirs come from trauma, from loss, from death, from absence. I think I wanted this to be a novel for me, the way I wrote it, because I was longing for my parents, not in my real life, but in fiction and literature. I couldn't find them anywhere. So uh, my mother was a girl of the 70s in Rome. Uh, it's a time frame that is very represented in Italian fiction because you had, of course, uh, political violence, right? radicalness. It's a, an interesting period. But... You never found, I never saw her in the square in the films that about that time I never saw her in the novels. And so I was very stubborn in finding some space for, for them. Uh, one line I read when I was little, I used to go into the attic, skip school, <laughs> and read books, pretending I was at school. 
Uh, and I remember Chekhov, I think, I, I found this quote that, you know, literature is a place for someone that gets a punch in their nose and they don't know where to go. And I was surrounded by people in my family, my parents, I got a punch in their nose, they didn't know where to go. And I think while I was writing this book, I said, oh, I'm going to carry you somewhere. Mm. And uh, my mother doesn't like uh, fiction. She doesn't believe fiction. Uh, we watched, I remember that very vividly, The Exorcist when I was little. I was exposed to a lot of film. <laughs> I shouldn't be watching at that age. <laughs> anyway, my mother, we saw The Exorcist, and she was like, so tense. She said, is this true? And I'm like, um, well, but I know that if I said not really, she would, you know, shut the TV, leave, leave mm -hmm. me there alone. And so I said, ah, kind of, this must have happened somewhere, somehow. Uh, and when she reads La Straniera, She says, oh, it's a work of art, it's a novel, it's fiction, and it's yours. You know? So that's the first time she acknowledged a, a fictional work, and it's about her and about all the things she said. And so I think that was a way to say, maybe you find a space for me in uh, literature, in some space I always aspired to, but I never openly said that, probably, I think. But that's beautiful. Yeah, I was helped. I mean, I wrote this book, yeah. but I had conspirators, I would say. Mm. I had, uh, and it is a book that comes out. Um, I often called it an autobiography of sentire, of listening, mm -hmm. in the sense that is very, it's based on, on conversations mostly, and, and the very meaningful ones are with my mother. Like in one of the final passages, I asked her something very late on. How did you think your life would have been if you were not deaf? And, you know, she was not happy sometimes of being deaf. She would have always a very dynamic and conflicting relationship with deafness. But she says, oh, I thought I would have been completely insignificant. And I thought that was fascinating because my mother was never really interested in love and happiness mm -hmm. in the strict sense. She was very interested in freedom, but in meaning. So sometimes she would do very reckless and crazy stuff, but mm. she thought, oh, this is meaningful. Yeah. Have you gotten, I mean, I don't have the perspective of the hearing impaired or the, or the deaf. Um, you were talking about that a little bit before, that it's not often, it's, it's, a, it's a stereotypical way of, of being shown in novels and, uh, and in uh, films. Have you had many reactions from hearing impaired people about how you um, describe your parents? Uh, yes, um, it, there were also some uh, ladies that came yesterday, that, um, some women, deaf women that came, uh, and that's, then CODA come sometimes that they read the book. Uh, I found out that I was a CODA, child of deaf adult, when I was 34. I never know. <laughs> knew that there was a definition. So it's been a very interesting experience uh, in the sense that uh, I was afraid that since it's also a linguistic community, mm that sometimes there would be a gap. Oh, your parents were non-signers, we are signers, so we went through it in a very different way. And I understood instead that is um, the, the meanings around it can shift more. And often they were laughing and saying, this happened to me, uh, this is kind of quite accurate. And I loved the way how often they were unburdening me, readers, mm -hmm. uh, deaf readers, and saying, Yeah, they're deaf, but they're also crazy. And so I said, see? And so, because my brother kept saying, this is not deafness the issue. We could have been, you know, completely legit straight kids. The fact that, but as I say in the book, and I do believe that, 
it's easier somehow to speak about uh, deafness, which is the kind of um, world I know, compared to mental illness. Mm. Uh, so those passages, you see that the language gets more elusive, fragile, and I wanted to keep that fragility because the book is also in dialogue with external... When I started writing it, uh, we didn't have a lot of events with sign interpreters, for example, disability studies. Most people studying it are either are disabled or have disability in their families. So I felt it was more specific. I think now it's opening up and enlarging. And I do think that this is relevant also for the conversation on class. And I do think that slowly would be also on mental illness. But at that time I was writing, I felt also I was putting too much into a bomb. <laughs> and I, I, could I hold up the consequences if the bomb exploded? I mean, as you're saying, your parents were both deaf and they were also crazy, or they had mental... Um, <laughs> uh, I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I mean, yes, I, of yes. course. <laughs> um, but as, at least your mom learned to sign uh, when, when young, but then refused to use it. Would you have... When looking back and also, because the book is so much about interpreting um, signs, sounds, uh, moods, everything, and, and translating them and analyzing, would you have, do you think that it had been different if you could have sign, uh, used sign language with your parents? Yes, absolutely. Would you um, have wanted that? My, f I think uh, I, I experienced, especially after the book, Uh, came out a sense of loss I'd never actively thought about that um, so one thing is that my mother uh, is even more sadistic my father doesn't recognize sign language at all my mother uses it but only with her deaf friends she didn't want to teach us mm. and if I think why she did it there is a line by Laurie Moore I quote in the book and I say mutilation is a language. So when you're not using the most straightforward and intuitive channel for you, but you're trying to build up parallel languages, which have also physical effort because she has to read um, lips and she forces us, of course, to speak in a different way. Sign language not only is beautiful, but it's also often quicker and delivers the message probably, um, I mean, with higher accuracy. I think she was exposing us to a lot of ambiguity, <laughs> in a way, to a lot of struggle. Why did she do that? Um, when my mother moved to southern Italy, um, this town, she was 34. She had two kids. She was divorced, but she was alone. She wanted to get away from family. She knew nobody there. And I think she was trying to show that she was almost a pioneer. Uh, she could be this you know, reckless artist living by herself. But then she found someone uh, she could tell her life to. Uh, and someone she could turn into a witness and a companion, and I was that person, mm. and I was her daughter. And so my mother was jumping all the hierarchies of the relationship, and she said, if I use sign language, I'm automatically setting a difference between me and my daughter, and me or my son, but I think it was more specific with me. So I, it's not that she was competitive, but in a way I think she wanted to to be similar. Maybe it was again the trick about intimacy and a likeness. Mm. And I played that game for a long time. And I think music that came to me through my mother, because my mother, I was, I grew up in this Italian American family, uh, loud. <laughs> they loved the neo-melodic Neapolitan music. So <laughs> they would play this uh, uh, with accordion, a lot of tarantella and all this music. And I would see my mother here on the wall usually. 
she would be angsty because she wanted to dance to be a part of it. And she would ask me, what does this song mean? You know, what does this song mean? And she wanted also to be close to her father. And I was like, mom, they're always about the same thing. This guy likes this girl. He tries to win her back. He chases her in an airport. You know, he does all of this stuff. Uh, but that's when I got interested into music through text and to, through words. Uh, and there wasn't a likeness because we couldn't have experience of songs um, together. Uh, this is why I, I mentioned before Patti Smith, Bob Dylan. I, I got very close to songwriters who were also poets uh, and writers. And when the first time I heard their voices, I was disappointed. <laughs> so I, then I learned to love them, but I'm like, uh, what is this? And then my mother gave music to me, but in a way to def every girl or every daughter separates from her mother. Mm. It was funny that I used, I think, music actively, especially listening to more uh, experimental music or music that is mostly driven by sound, something that I couldn't translate to her immediately to separate from her. And I suddenly was in a different world, in another space. Mm. There are lots of musical references in the book. And I also know that you've been working uh, as a music journalist. You've written about music. And um, when I read about your parents, they're, um, in a way, of course, it's like, as a parent myself, I'm concerned, but as a person, I'm kind of inspired by their rebel attitude mm -hmm. uh, towards the world and towards their disability. And for me, that's, that's a, being in constant opposition like that is very like the punk movement. Mm -hmm. And you seem like you were drawn to punk music and to that kind of subcul subculture. And can you tell uh, me a bit about what drew you to that? Yes, uh, I'm gonna start by a band, current Italian band, which is not punk, mm -hmm. but uh, it's, I think you know them, uh, Maniskin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I reviewed them and I got death threats because I said, I think the best judge for this band is my mother who likes them and she can hear them. She's deaf. Mm -hmm. But in a way, she understands them perfectly. They're so engrossing to watch them. They're yeah. beautiful. You know, they're very sexy. And I think... Just want to make sure. So, but yeah, sorry. Eurovision and Mona Skin. The Italian oh, yeah. cool. Sorry. Because yes. uh, here it's like with an O. Yeah. And so... <laughs> She reads the lyrics were very basic mm -hmm. uh, and often in English uh, and then and when they're not covers uh, and then she just looks at them and she manages to get all the, the energy. And this is why I thought of jumping back in time, why my mother was attracted by punk. I enrolled in cultural anthropology, not because uh, I was interested, you know, in foreign countries and communities and ethnicities. I wanted to know why punks wore uh, safety pins in their ears. I was so obsessed. Why did the Mohawk became a signifier? Uh, and the first time I saw them, I was in the Lower East Side in New York. I was, I think, 14. And I see these punk kids just sleeping in the street they have again nowhere to go mm. and I was so jealous and immediately attracted by them because I thought my mother could have easily been one of them <laughs> and punk uh, it is not she's true. more punk than the kids in the lower east yeah, side like <laughs> it's not true that you don't have know how to play an instrument and mm. you don't need a, a, um, an education but of course if I became that kind of person that listened to Mozart and Bach it would have been harder to share something with my mother and I think uh, the reason why I was immediately drawn into it because it felt to me more accessible mm. 
And the notion of accessibility was very important for me with this book and affected also the style of it. So I wanted my mother to be able to, to read it and then somehow punk was something that she could understand. But then later on, I thought that maybe noise would bring us closer. Mm -hmm. If I go to a My Bloody Valentine, a very loud mm -hmm. uh, band concert, and it just, you know, makes a mess in your head and your ears, and it, it shakes, you know, it's yeah. a kind of vibration that makes your body shake. Mm -hmm. That vibration would probably be mm -hmm. the same that my mother would experience. So mm -hmm. I said, I got this all wrong. I should have taken her to noise concerts, probably, <laughs> <laughs> instead of being so focused on text. Yeah. Not too late, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe you should read a part. Yeah. So we can hear. It's always nice to hear the author's voice when reading. You did write this book in Italian, though. Yes, uh, there so. are some parts I wrote uh, in English, mm -hmm. uh, but then I translated myself into Italian. When the book was translated into English, I thought maybe I can do the reverse journey, mm -hmm. but I let someone else t take uh, care of it, the translator. Wasn't that hard? To letter? To, no, to, I mean, you're a translator yourself. To translate, I mean, uh, did uh, was it was it easy for you to, to release control and just let someone else do it? Uh, I have to think also. Johanna was here in the audience, and she's a translator of in uh, Swedish. Um, mm -hmm. So I became close to my translators in the sense that I told them what I wish authors said to me. Mm. This book is going to be your interpretation; is yours mm. anyway. Make it as much you know yours as you could. So I, I actually was worried of the opposite in a way that I had to interfere uh, too much because I think there is no way it could, uh, translation is um, un atto di cura, which means an, an act of taking care, mm. is an act of love. You have to be really invested and involved in, in order to make it a good translation. So if you have an author constantly knocking on your door, say, ah, what I meant was this, and sometimes translators know what you meant way better than you. So <laughs> I was translating The Great Gatsby. Well, mm -hmm. at that time, well, I was writing the book, stuff like that. And Liz Harris, who's the translator in English, said, oh, Claudia, I could tell you were so obsessed and fascinated by the Valley of the Ashes, which is a setting in The Great Gatsby. And she said, the way you describe Basilicata in that opening, it matches it, even syntactically. And I said, that, that was not what I was doing at all. I mean, I'm very flattered. But she could read, you know. Translating is almost like a detective game. You're not allowed to be the killer and the detective at the same time. You just have to do the job, kill something, kill literature, and then someone else needs to find what the mess you've done. So that's my understanding of it. Uh, this chapter is, by the end, it's called Work and Money, mm -hmm. and it opens up with a quote of Virginia Woolf, what affect as poverty on fiction? A worthless novel. In 1990, The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer came out, written by Jennifer Lynch the daughter of the director of Twin Peaks. I don't know how it wound up in my home. All I know is that in elementary school, after reading about Laura's adventures, hanging out with the wrong people, getting hypnotized, skinny dipping at night, I started to keep a diary, a habit I pretty much held on to until I was 20. This diary wasn't a chronicle of my adventures in daily woes. It was an accurate record of falsification. It talked about cigarettes I'd never smoked, and boys I fell for but only referred to by their first initial followed by an emphatic period. And I was so dogged about composing this parallel life of mine that my mother was convinced 
from sneaking into my room and reading my passionate description of smoking in the bathroom that I was hooked on nicotine by the time I was 10. So, as I did in elementary school, drawing a fake house I didn't live in and writing essays about my family like a compulsive liar, when I visit my mother over Christmas holidays, I'll reopen these diaries and flip through the fantasy life of a girl who never existed, filled with clues to the person I was. My mother has been working on a sort of autobiography ever since she was born, poured into journals, spilled into letters, piled high with a trash heap of phone messages. It's her complete works, and it consumes her more than anything else. I only have free access to one of these items, the diary she left with her friends before moving to America, except that she changed her mind and met my father. It's a farewell diary of letters, dedicated to a girl about to change her life. But then she doesn't. I know these friends' letter by heart, and there is one in particular that always hurts, from a boy in love, who writes, You wanted to come to Rome, you came, and now you're leaving. You wanted a job, you found one, and now you're quitting. You were dying to talk with your friends, and when you got together with them, you almost never talked. Whatever it is you're looking for in America, you won't find it. I don't know if I'll still be here waiting for you, but if you won't, try and look for me. I know it by heart because it's a letter someone could also write to me. I didn't just get my coloring from my mother. I also got my obsessions from her, my inconsistency. Very nice, thank you. <laughs> This book your mom is working on? <laughs> she, is it going to come out? <laughs> I don't know, my publisher at one point said it was funny, you know, if we got the real La Straniera, you know, this is like, uh, you know, when you had the Gospels, you had the real ones and the mm. apocryphal ones, so this is the fake Gospels and mm. that's the true Gospels, yeah, we were, we were thinking about it, but it's just huge. Yeah. <laughs> She's been having them since she was eight, so it's a lot of material. And you started writing early. Yes. And what, what did writing do for you? I mean, you were living in this sort of chaos. Did, did, was writing your therapy, or what did you turn to writing? Uh, writing for me started as an act of theft, literally, in the sense that I was stealing books from my mother's shelves. Didn't want to go to school. I felt pretty isolated there, and I would go to the attic. And I remember the act of reading certain books and writing in parallel, almost one generated the other pretty quickly. The issue was that the first books I have physical memory of, uh, one is uh, Last Exit to Brooklyn by Obert Selby Jr. Uh, and I picked it up from the shelves because it had the main character in the film, a blonde girl called Tralala, and she looked like Marilyn. So what did I know? I thought, oh, someone looks like Marilyn. Marilyn is America. Maybe I'll feel more at home if I get this book. Brooklyn. Brooklyn was home. So I was looking. I had this longing. And then it's a book about, you know, hookers and drug addicts and men and stuff like that, an apartment full of cockroaches. I loved it to death, but I couldn't understand it. So I was with a vocabulary, you know, <laughs> looking for all of these uh, street slang, you know. Mm. Uh, but that kind of, it's like ink exploded in my blood. I don't know how to say it. It just filled me with visions. And so imagine how dramatic my first short stories were. There was always someone who didn't have a home, had a bad love relationship, was addicted to something. So they were very dramatic. Uh, and then 
Another book I read quite early was Dracula by Bram Stoker. So I had an intense period of Gothic Victorian writing again. So it was very... And the question about sex is funny because, you know, when people say oh, there's not enough sex in the book, I think I wasted all the sex in my stories when I was a child <laughs> because with this Dracula thing of the bites and stuff, you know, from the love it was. But I think with this act of theft, reading those books and writing and in order to f test, I think, my, my voice, that was a process that became quite early. Yeah. Mm. Um, this is your fourth book. Mm -hmm. It's the first one that's out in Swedish. Yeah. Uh, and this is also the book that, that was like the major breakthrough for you, as I understand it. Yeah. Um, this might be, it's hard to phrase this question, but sometimes people are so obsessed with true stories, mm -hmm. true crime, true everything. Um, how do you feel about the fact that when you write about your life, even though in fictional setting, that that's what people like? Yeah, uh, I like to think that as much as fiction is a field or a world that has a lot of genres within, so you have love novels, crime novels, spy novels, we assume that in the world of nonfiction, autobiography, memoir, there are not sub genres within, and I don't think that's the case uh, at all. I'm trying to, when I was working on this book, I met an author, a friend, he said, what are you doing uh, right now? And I said, oh, I'm writing a linguistic sentimental essay on my family lexicon. Uh, there is parts of my life, maybe there are some facts. And he's like, Claudia, you're writing a memoir. And I said, no, 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 no. But then I thought, why is this disturbing me so much? Mm. Because, uh, not because I call it the industry of the first person. We are surrounded by yes. narratives of the first person. Uh, but that's something also that is relevant and was influenced, I think, uh, by technology in a way. I don't know if now Facebook feels like a very old platform. Depends on how old you are. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess. But I remember when it started, it was in the first, it was, the format was the classic standard narrative voice. Third person. It felt weird, but you were supposed to write, Claudia thinks that. Mm. And I think that had all kinds of consequences in dishing out and playing, you know, with uh, your current journal and your diary. Then in 2011, which was an interesting year, uh, because you had Occupy, was the first year I could remember in my life. To me, it was even more impactful that 2001, you know, with the Twin Towers. So I think it was a year when I saw a lot of changes. Um, uh, I was... Mm, very in the present. I didn't feel nostalgia that year. And then it turns into I, you know, I think. And that's something that I, even unconsciously affected a production of micro journals, micro diary, all the platforms were encouraging and this hypertrophic I. Uh, but there's a lot of things you can do with that. So the first person in this book sometimes feels more, discon not disconnected, but a little further away, almost I am as if I were an anthropologist visiting this family, this community. I know I'm the daughter, but sometimes I'm speaking as a visitor and sometimes I'm speaking, you can hear the writer uh, and they're all conflicting and playing with each other, these different roles. Uh, and so I think there's way and way you can position yourself within uh, autobiography. There's 
personal essays I absolutely adore and others that I wish I simply haven't read. I'm a more, uh, it's funny, one of my favorite authors, she's considered the master of the personal essay and the memoir and Judd Didion. I love her novels to death and I'm not so compelled by her, her memoirs. So sometimes this happens even despite your own intentions and I right now currently interested in authors like Natalia Ginsburg, who managed to handle the personal essays and the novels with different tones, temperatures and styles, but the, with the same kind of seriousness. So if you ask me, uh, where, how do I feel? I think I would like to wear the eye and undress from the eye with a sort of mobility and don't forget that the third person is there, but sometimes sneak into mm. the, the first, yeah, the, the third. And with that, let's turn our attention to the audience. Is there anyone out there that would like to ask a question? And then I'll send Ingmar out with the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> And let's have some lights. Is there okay. anyone that's curious? Don't be shy. Come again, now Sverige. There we go. There's one. Up again, yeah. Ingmar. <laughs> Hello, Claudia. My name is Nina. Thank you for sharing all your stories of your story. And I have to admit, I haven't finished the last chapter, so maybe it comes towards the end, so excuse my question in that sense. But how is your relationship to your brother today? Because as I'm reading through it, you know, you, you idolize him first, and then you sort of hate him. And, and where does it end up? I haven't gotten to the end, so let me know. What is your relationship with your brother? Good question. Uh, I think I will describe it. Uh, hi, Nina, thanks for the question. Uh, starting from place. So I lived in London for many years. I wanted to move back to the States. Right now I live two floors down from my brother. And my mother is very disappointed. She said, I don't understand this at all. You know, should, you should want out of family as much as you can. You know, you're turning. She said, you're traveling back in time. You know, you're being the little sister again. Uh, my brother, when I, he helped, he influenced the form of this book because, of course, when you start writing about the past and family, you do want to not make sure, but you ask uh, them how they feel about it. And he said, like, oh, you're writing a book about our family, so you're writing sci-fi. My brother is not the greatest reader. He's not very sophisticated. He is in some things, but not in terms of theory of fiction. I thought that was very liberating because whatever I came up with, you know. So he read it in one sitting. When it came out, he said, oh, I had fun. And he said, I, I think you forgot this and this. And then the only time he got wistful was when we went to dinner. And he was thinking about the character he had when he was in the States. So he was a street punk. He was mm. hanging out, you know, all of these street boys you see often an Italian-American film, he was ditching school. He was allowed to be a rebel. But then when we moved to Southern Italy, he had to become the adult there, take care of me. And then he said a very dramatic sentence. I think he was drunk. He said, oh, moving in Italy, mother killed the novel in me. So he said, if we stayed there, I could aspire. Maybe Here. Now? Oh, yeah. Uh, what happened? It was something else. Oh, yeah, Mine, sorry. Uh, 
Yes. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was saying sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, see? And, and he said that he killed the novel, and I think that he... But that's not the explanation. I don't think my mother moved this dramatic event because he wanted to kill the novel in the sun. But I think, in a way, he was responding to something I say in the book, that part of our growing up was trying to understand how we could hold up to this kind of epic life uh, they had. And I think now we are in a very good place because we just gave up and we said we can never inspire to that kind of demonic influx. So we butt <laughs> together. To me, it's the alien speaking sci-fi because it is very clear that I am the character in the book is influenced by these different forces of brother and mother especially. But I always wonder where did he came from? Because in a way he had no... No one on top of him. So his experience was even more radical uh, than mine. And I love the way because you think there are all these bizarre and odd characters and he's the straight edge kid. I happen to think he's the weirdest because you don't know how he turned out possibly to, to be. It's like, you know, a character in a magic or folk tale that has certain superpowers and you never understand where he got them from. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Do we have another one? En till tycker jag. Oh, there's one. Thank you. Perfect. Oh, hello. Oh, perfect. Now, sorry. Um, hello, everyone. I'm interested. Uh, I was really interested to listen to your uh, talk here, and. Um, You said that it was quite uh, late that you uh, got to know the definition coda. Have you um, now, after learning this, uh, have you had any contact with uh, like a deaf club or a deaf community uh, that you have had some exchanges with? Um, because I, I know... Uh, Another author who, kind of in the same situation, after finding out that this coda uh, definition was existed, uh, this author reconnected with the deaf community and everything and rediscovered that. How was that experience for you? Hi, thank you for your questions. Uh, today, I I've been out with this book and traveling, visiting um, people and communities for a while now. Uh, and so my agent asked, uh, how do you feel about all these encounters you've made? And I think what would stay the longer with me and the strongest in the fact that I finally had access to a world that my mother never allowed me in a way. It was her space uh, to be in contact with. So I feel finally I have a vengeance, you know? I go to <laughs> um, deaf book clubs and I've been there in Italy and I did one event in Germany, for example, and I met them in the States right now. So it was even interesting to see sign language, which I don't speak in translation in a way, and how these different countries had different communities and how they responded because there's also um, a society dimension to it. I love the fact that in Germany they were very active in reading the book. Unfortunately, I must say, uh, in Italy, the relationship with, the, at least at the beginning, with deaf readers was weaker 
often because there is no access to events in a way. There is no sign interpreting um, at book events. So it was, I think, a journey within a journey. Uh, and I would like to think that this connection stays uh, even aside from me actively writing about deafness in the sense that what I found fascinating is that allowing me to explore different ways to express yourself. And since I am a translator, I think I do have a special interest in being in contact, not only because of my personal story or something I missed in my life, but I think it, it is relevant in the way I understand how you work with words. So it's been, uh, I would say, a, a privilege and something that it still is very special to me. Thank you for asking. I know I speak fast, it must be a nightmare. That's okay, we'll wait till we're done. <laughs> No rush. Yeah. I, I have to say something about this, okay? Yeah. So uh, I gesticulate a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I moved to London, everybody, oh, you do this because you're Italian, you know? And I said, no, no, no. I'm Italian and I'm the daughter who, of a deaf woman who never taught me sign language. So I have this kind of impulse, you know, to express myself. And even yesterday in Malmo, I really wanted to connect with these women. And so I was acting like crazy. And my mom, now when she sees me doing this, you know, she kind of says, you're embarrassing. Don't do that anymore because whatever you do doesn't mean anything. You know, it's not, it's not nice to look at, you know? <laughs> And also when I was a child and she came to pick me up at school and she would do gestures, not sign language, but you know, she would be very, I would do the opposite. I would tell her, oh, no, I'm embarrassed, I'm embarrassed. So there is an opposite of, and she says, Claudia, it's too late now, you know, that you mm. want to show you have a deaf mother. Uh, I think we still have this kind of funny interactions. Mm. Yeah. Would you, but would you consider a learning sign language now? Oh, this is Since what, she obviously knows it. Uh, my brother is an architect, but he's also a guide, a uh, tour guide in Rome, Colosseum, stuff like that. One day he comes and he says, oh, I want to do this in sign language. I think it's part of who I am and my heritage. I should have learned it before. And I also want to use it, you know, uh, as a work tool to help people explore Rome. I got mad, furious, because I thought I was entitled to do it first, you know? And so we had this kind of Why? <laughs> competing game in a way, because then he said that kind of very, no, I'm going to surprise mom. You know, that kind of cheesy stuff people do when they ask you to get married, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so imagine my brother doing a video in sign language, you know, that will make me mad, you know? Maybe I'll tell them to do it together. I don't know. I don't want him to beat me in this, you know? <laughs> but it's weird since she knows sign language. No, no, it's even funnier than that. My mother has two deaf best friends. Mm -hmm. They have a daughter. The father is Serbian. The mother is Italian. The girl sign language is in Serbian. In Italian, she speaks English because of school she studies, and some French and stuff like that. She comes to visit and my mom looks at her. Ilaria, she's a genius, you see, so fluent in sign language, many languages. And me and my brother look at her horrified, you know, because he said, the parents did the right thing. This girl is polyphonic, polylingual, you know, very well versed and all the kind of things. So she's like super quick. And you no, know, this is reconnects to what you ask. I understand why she did it at that time in her life. Mm. I think today, probably if I learned it, she would use it with me. Mm. Yeah. Aren't you curious? Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, to see what could, what could open between you? Or do you think it would change anything? Would you, would you find out more nuances? You so think? my mother right now is more and more in the deaf community. As okay. she's growing up, mm -hmm. she's doing more that kind of life. And my mother is turning in a sort of separatista, separatist. Mm -hmm. She's more like, I like to hang out with them more. Mm. 
because I feel at ease. And I think after all of this fight that she put, she feels more fluid and what feels natural to her. So I think she would welcome that into our world, but it will also be a sign that things have changed pretty much. So I was thinking, when am I going to start learning? And I unconsciously thought, when I'm done speaking about this book, mm. I'm going to assume that as a new project. And something that was very moving, I was in the States recently, and a lady in the audience, she, hearing lady, she was moved and she was crying. The title in Italian, La Straniera, is close to L'Etranger by Camus. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she told me that Camus' mother was deaf, mm -hmm. and I never knew. And so when that happened, uh, she was also mute and half deaf one year, and then she got increasingly deaf, and then I told my mom. And I felt that that was another moment of closure, in a mm -hmm. way, that some, a book that was so inspiring to me. Uh, and what it is about, you know, migration, alienation, distance, uh, uh, came out of an experience of deafness uh, mm -hmm. in real life. So that was another moment where I said, I can leave this aside and maybe deal with the uh, sign language in, in my real life. Mm. Oh, time has run out. It's, yeah. it's too interesting. <laughs> I have a final question. You were saying, I mean, the book is about distance. The book is about trying to get close, about interpretation. Have you, throughout the process of the book, have has that distance become smaller? Have you become closer to your parents and your childhood through write the writing of this book? Or the other way around? Maybe. I think that what I did with this book was trying to imagine them, especially my mother. Um, I repeat myself, but this is something that happened during the first times I was going out with this book. I, I used to say, by mistake, my mother didn't have any kids, which has no sense. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. But I think I was working on her character mm. to imagine her before me, after me, beyond me. And I think that was an act of generosity, <laughs> but also a powerful act in expressive artistic terms to imagine a mother without you uh, in a way and, you know, removing from uh, the pages or the scene a certain kind of feelings that maybe are there, but I wanted to explore uh, I was very really curious about them. So even with the kidnapping I was saying before, I was trying to think about what this man was feeling at the time. And so there's a tension. But I always wanted to be more like a road trip or something more uh, picaresque because all of a sudden my parents came interesting to me that way. And so this interest and curiosity, I think, brought them closer to me. Not necessarily you feel interested, as I said at the beginning, in the marginalities or in the exceptional circumstances. If it's your own epic, sometimes you'll get just tired with it. But I think that was changed in our relationship, and I still do. The problem is... Um, they're adapting this um, book for a TV series. So I've been in conversations and the, the editors, producers, directors, they keep going, there's more, there's more facts that we could use. And I'm like, book ended, but they kept going. Mm. So my father, uh, last summer, he was 70, he was driving a motorbike in Greece. Um, and he fell. I, he was a little tipsy. Uh, and so I said, oh, okay, I'm going to go take this coughing. I, I'm very dramatic. You know, I'm going to fly to Athens, come back with, with, with his body. I go there and the super drama, and my father managed to seduce all the nurses and the doctors. 
<laughs> I went there, and he's mad at me. And he said, why did you come here for nothing? Why did you use my credit card to come here? And I took his money, and I went to the most expensive jewelry in Athens, and I bought a pair of gold earrings that I want to be buried with them. You know, And so I said, this is a good scene. This is, I felt bad because I was supposed to experience that with a pain, you know, in a way. But all I could think of, I'm, I'm going to call them and say, we, what can we make out of this? And I'm immensely lucky, you know, because they keep providing with this, all this, this weird, weird stuff. And also... You could have a long-running TV series. It's just like, like never-ending. It's like, this is a very delicate subject, but, you know, Coda is a film that won. Uh, now the Oscars, and they have fantastic actors. But my mother, we were discussing, um, and I do think uh, that there's fantastic actors in the deaf community, you know, that it should be um, that kind of casting. And my mother goes, you know, I want her to be beautiful and very sexy. I, not necessarily she has to be deaf. And I'm like, what, what, what's wrong with it, you know, in a way? Where all this debate of representation, you know? She manages to say the wrongest thing at the wrongest time, you know? She's not in tune with the current, <laughs> you know, spirit of time, with the current zeitgeist, you know, to mm -hmm. say that. But okay, and I'm not going to... I mean, I know I told you, but I'll keep this comment you made a secret. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys won't say anything, right? <laughs> okay, so um, so when will when will it come into production? Do you know anything about that? Uh, yes. So they're writing it, uh, and I don't want. I think this. I I'm a consultant, but I don't want to do it um, myself. Uh, no, it's going to be interesting because the director asked me to meet them. Mm -hmm. So now I have to fall into this process to prep my parents to be the best interpreters of their own selves to have an audition with this person. So the boundary between fiction and nonfiction gets even more intense, you know? Instead of saying, just be yourself, I have mm -hmm. to say, be, you know, the most fictional version of yourself that you found in this book. Let's see how it goes, but that's going to be fun. <laughs> It'll be <Yeah>. a process. <laughs> Is it an American production or Italian? Italian-American, it's all over the place. I'm always the child I was, I was so worried, you know, I'm worried, do you know how much this is going to cost? You know, <laughs> I'm constantly saying that I am the opposite. Oh, then we fly there and there, you know, I'm budgeting my own life out of worry, out of this worry. <laughs> okay, we're looking forward to seeing this series and I, I wish I could be a fly on the wall in the making of it too. Thank you so much thank you. It was for, very for fun. talking and to us, Claudia, thank and thank you, you thank to you the you audience. So